0: Good morning. Still really good to see you guys, even though I'm looking over masks. Someone asked me last week what, that, what that's like. I said, It's weird, man. Is it weird for you? It's weird for me, but we're going to do it. We're going to tunnel through. And here's the reality today, we're between the series. We finished a series last week, and it was so good to have everyone in the room to finish that together. Finally. But today, we are looking at starting a new series next week. And that next week, I'm really excited to get into the book of James and look through the trials we face and what Jesus seeks to teach us through those trials. We're going to walk through that for a moment. We're going to go verse by verse. But today, God has been like allowing me the opportunity to just kind of think on this from this vantage point. How many of you ever had a family meetings growing up? And how many of you as parents have family meetings with your kids? And everyone kind of, like the moment someone says, hey, family meeting, everyone goes, oh, geez, what's dad going to say now, right? Kind of like, what's dad got to say? Okay, so I'm not dad, but I think dad has something he wants to say, okay? God burdened me like well before quarantine, and quarantine has only served to fan the flame of what God has for us today. So we're going to look at two passages, one in the old, one in the new, and neither of these people, neither of the folks who wrote these passages, they're not dad either, but they're writing on behalf of dad. And today, we're going to have a little family meeting, so buckle up, and we're just going to see what dad has for his church today, okay? Is that all right? All right, Father, we love you. Thank you so much for loving us. We pray, Father, you'd speak to us by your Spirit, and Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. So, uh, I'm going to read immediately from Second Corinthians 5, because these are the words of Paul. Now, I want you to understand, the passage I'm about to read is incredibly convicted, and it's incredibly convicting, Paul's writing from a place of deep and visceral conviction. Like he feels this really lowly. And the, and the reason he does is because he came from a place and he was moved to a new place. He came from a place of really uh, struggle as a kid. He fought through a lot. He was gifted, but he fought through a lot. He was a scrappy kid who aspired to become Jew of the Jews. And then in his aspirations, in his aspiring, in his fame, and his acclaim... Something was birthed during the middle of all that, and it was the church of Jesus. And that stood in the way of him really becoming everything that Judaism had promised him. And he was looking for that. He was trying to find peace and prosperity in that title in Judaism, as Saul of Tarsus, the revered. And so he took all his frustration, all his anger, all of his hurt, and even his, like, like he killed the people of the church, until God knocked him off his horse. Okay, we're going to talk about that a little bit today. How many of you have ever been knocked off your horse? Welcome to quarantine, right? Right? Okay, here it is. From 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21, he says, For Christ compels us, because we are now convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us a message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Paul is saying here, first and foremost, is this, that we have to, as the church, remember. We have to remember where we've come from. We have to remember that if we, if we want to reconcile, we're not going to reconcile unless we first remember where we have come from. So we won't reconcile when we don't remember that we were all once slaves. Enslaved to sin, enslaved to selfish ambition, self-absorption, enslaved to our own selfish desires. We were all once slaves. Now, throughout Scripture... We see God taking the people of God, whether it be the Israelites or the New Testament church. We see God taking the people of God and allowing them in their prone to wanderness, in their idolatry, turn their attention, turn their heart back to Him. And it typically comes through trial and pain. It comes through a difficult time. Like the people of God were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then when they were led out of that, in fear, they didn't just take the promised land. They wandered in the wilderness for another 40 And here's what God said through the hand of Moses to those people. In Deuteronomy 6, which is a pinnacle passage for the the people of of Judaism, this is where you find the Shema, the thing that their leaders quote and pray three times a day. This is where you find the very two greatest commandments. Moses writes this, The one who was their patriarch, their father, who led them out, a representative of the God who loved them, promised a Messiah would redeem them. He said this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land. Now, the land was always a precursor to what salvation eternally would be in the Messiah. It was just a manifestation here on earth of what it would be like there. He says, When the Lord God brings you into the land, He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of goods that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. He saved us and made a way for every single person in this room and every single person through history when there wasn't a way in Jesus. And I'm going I'm to ask you, How many of you have a tendency to forget that? How many of us have a tendency to forget that we had no way apart from Jesus, but sometimes we have a tendency to, just like we sung for years through that faithful hymn, that we're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to wander right back to lifting my name above your name. Focusing on you versus focusing on him and who I actually represent. You see, there is this thematic uh, thing that is taught through the narratives of Hollywood. There's a message. And through the five scripts that you'll find in Hollywood, because everyone knows there's only five scripts in Hollywood, right? <laughs> it's just a joke. Just kidding. Okay? But there's a narrative that you'll find through the the scripts in Hollywood. I was watching the, the movie Mulan with my kids the other day. I haven't seen the new one, the live version. I've just, I'm just going back and watching the 98 Disney version, right? We were watching it, and I saw it come forth. In that, in that story, you have Mulan, and not to blow the whole thing for you, but Mulan is enlisted in a war, and she saves the life of her commanding officer, She pulls him up and saves him. And then, later on, because it's unlawful for a woman to fight in battle, she's impersonating a boy, she's impersonating and portraying herself as a son, she's exposed, and the law requires that her commanding officer behead her, that it means she give her life. As he takes the sword, he looks at her, throws down the sword, and says, a life for a life, my debt is paid. That... That you saved me in that moment, I can't get past that, I'm indebted to you, so now I'll save you. The entire gospel message Paul's trying to remind us here is based on the principle of a life debt. And one that we could never pay back. It's like Isaiah responding in Isaiah 6 when he says, Woe is me for I'm undone as I look upon the Lord and I experience him for the first time to be saved. My eyes have seen the king, the true king, not the one I'm sitting here worshiping. And everything that meant about me. He says, he stood there and he says, My lips are unclean because I've paid homage to the wrong king. And after God shows him the painful process of purging, God asks a question, whom shall we send who will go for us? Who will use their mouth for me? And Isaiah says, I shouldn't even be breathing. I'll gladly go. Send me. And he's enlisted as a prophet of the Lord from that moment forward. And it wasn't, it wasn't a super comfortable calling. In fact, Isaiah was like hated by the people. But he gladly went. Why? Because he knew when he met the Lord, he shouldn't have been breathing there in his sin. But God loved him in his grace and not only, not only lifted him from the quagmire, but he redeemed him, enlisted him, called him as his own. And not for us as the church, not even just as bond servants or just as subjects. He says that you are son and daughter. He says that we have all been given a life debt that we could never repay, one for eternity. And we've been not only called out of the quagmire and death, but we have been called to new life as royalty, royal priests, sons and daughters of the one true living God. So what what Deuteronomy reminds us here, as Moses is trying to remind the Israelites, and this is why it becomes a fundamental passage, he says, Do not forget... Don't forget from which you came. Don't forget from which you were. And he says to the church today, as Paul's writing Second Corinthians 5, hey, don't forget where you come from. Don't forget who you once were. Remember that you, you were once lost and had no way. In death, you sought only for yourself. You bought the apple hook, line, and sinker. You were after a life that lifted you on the throne and sought to have everyone worship you. And you go, but I've never said that out loud. Look at the way you fight for yourself. And deny that that's the essence of the very gospel. It was what deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. And we took it. We bought it. I said, maybe, maybe you've experienced getting knocked off your horse before. I've been knocked off my horse several times through this life. And it wasn't just first at quarantine. Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians 5 because he got knocked off his horse, literally. He's on his way to Damascus to imprison those who are of the way there because they stand in the way of him aspiring to become everything Judaism has to offer. He thinks that in that title, in that prestige, he'll finally have peace and joy and happiness. He'll finally have what his heart has craved his entire life. So he is seeking to kill Christians, and God goes with a shining light, falls off his horse and a booming voice. Saul of Tarsus, why are you persecuting me? Why do you continue to kick against my leading you, my prodding you? I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to tell you that my son Jesus was the Messiah, that you've become a master of the law and you've been waiting on this whole time, but yet you keep imprisoning, you keep killing people who worship him. I'm actually calling you to him. I want you To serve me, the one who's known you, loved you like no one else, and has a plan for you. Who put this brilliant mind that you have in you? You're going to become one of those prolific writers of the New Testament. But you have to change your heart and allegiance first. You're fighting for yourself, and you're fighting for something that will ultimately never satisfy you, never make you content. You have to come to me. And out of that experience, here's what's amazing. How many of you know that it takes time to develop in the way of Jesus? Like, it takes time. It's not like automatic. Like, Saul of Tarsus immediately was blinded, walked into Damascus, and Ananias, who's the leader of the way there, anoints him, baptizes him, prays over his eyes, scales fall off, and he can see for the first time. He immediately goes into Damascus, starts telling people about Jesus, but here's, the, here's what happens. People don't receive it. Why? Because they don't trust this guy. They know his reputation, they know why he was coming, so they don't know. They're like, who is Saul of Tarsus? We've heard of that guy, he's here to kill us. Now he's talking to Jesus, is this a trick? So he leaves, and he goes into Arabia for three years, and it says that he does not go with one of the apostles. He doesn't go with any of of the other leaders who have followed the Lord and trained at the Lord's side. He goes by himself for three years into the wilderness. I've had people ask me this before. They, they argue, they go, well, how could Paul truly be an apostle because he didn't have an in-person encounter with Jesus and he didn't walk with him for three years of training just like the other disciples? Did you hear what we just said? God himself, in the form of Jesus, through the voice and the light, knocks saw off his horse. So, did he have a personal encounter with Jesus? Yes. And how long was he in Arabia training with just the revelation of Jesus? Three years. The exact same amount of time that every disciple who walked alongside Jesus had through the ministry of Jesus while he was here. So, this not only encourages it, it indemnifies him as an apostle of Jesus. And he comes out of that time and he's like, now I'm back. And goes straight back to Damascus, starts preaching, and no one will hear him because they still don't trust him. It's like, dude, what what's this guy have to do? So he leaves there and goes to Jerusalem. And he gets to Jerusalem and everyone in Jerusalem knows who he is. And he is preaching the name of Jesus so much so that the Hellenistic Jews, those who used to follow this guy, Saul of Tarsus, those who used to follow him, they now step up. And go, who do you think you are? We're going to take you out. We're going to kill you. So the church of Jesus, those who were bold enough to trust that he had actually been through life change. Because he acts different. And he will not stop saying that it was Jesus that was the answer. They come to him and go, hey, Paul, if we don't get you out of here, you're going to die. Like, your zealous nature may be great, but it ain't time. Because the Jews, they're going to kill you like they did Jesus. Jesus. So what do they do? They sneak him out in the middle of the night and they send him back to Tarsus where he's where he's from. You can read this in Acts 9. At the end of Acts 9, it says, they sent him off in verse 30. In Acts eleven, just two chapters later, someone comes looking for Saul. Someone comes looking for Paul in Tarsus. But you need to understand something. This is really important. And I think that we how many of you like results and you like them immediately? like them quickly, okay? Between 9 and 11 of Acts, it wasn't one day, it wasn't two, it wasn't three months, it wasn't a year, wasn't two, wasn't three. Ten years pass between two chapters in the Bible. Ten years go by between 9 and 11. And there is the most brilliant mind in Judaism, the Jew of the Jews, is in Tarsus, now a Christian where no one will follow him, no one will trust him. While in Jerusalem, he spent some time with the apostles and they were only affirming everything that he kept saying and that's why they snuck him off. But for 10 years, even the affirmation of the apostles, this guy is by himself and Barnabas comes looking for him and he finds him on a dock in the marketplace so intense. When you are the most brilliant mind in Judaism and you have resorted to so intense, how humiliating is that? Did anyone think this might he might be a little overqualified for the whole situation? But you know who didn't complain? Paul. Because it takes time. It takes time. He was zealous and came out the gate, and no one responded. His message was right, but guess what was not right? His delivery. The whole person of Paul was a problem. And so he had to go through a time of training, humbling, humility, to have within him reshaped this thought that I may have been the Jew of the Jews, but that's not who I am today. Like Isaiah, I should be dead in Jesus' name. In Jesus' presence, but He let me live, so I'm not coming with the acumen of Saul of Tarsus. I'm coming as one who has all the acumen, but found myself making tents. And I think this is important to people in a in a room like this in America today, where we're hearing of furloughs and people losing jobs, and people go, "Well, I have an education," and you may just have some friends who've lost their job and have to go to some really humbling places just to provide a living for their family right now. And here's the point. Why would that be important to us in this moment? Why would it be important that Paul went through that so that we could understand and take that knowledge and hand it away to someone who may be doing something humbling right now just so they can provide for the family in integrity? Here's why. Because you took the patriarch of the New Testament who wrote most of it and and paved a way for us in his own blood that we would know Jesus was the answer so that you could take that and give it to that person. You hear that? We're not going to be reconciling others until we first remember where we come from. And Paul goes, hey, I'm really convicted about this. That's why I'm writing, one died so that all died. One died for all so that all could die. Here's what he's saying. He died so that we could all lose any hope or aspiration in anything other than him. What died with me? I had a death, a death to self, and I had a death to my previous agenda. All that is gone. Because the reality is this, we cannot right what we don't accept as wrong. We were all moved from bondage to abundance, he says. So if we do not cherish Jesus' generous love for us, and we're not broken as over the people in our lives who are souls adrift just like we were once, inflicted with self-absorption, lost and depraved, without His value or His love sustaining them, then can I ask you a question? As a minister of reconciliation, what is motivating you? Like, honestly, if that doesn't motivate you, then what does? C.S. Lewis, in a work, Mere Christianity, said it like this. He said, all of us were in bondage to sin, but He moved us to a life abundant. In that sin, what we did was we tried to find any means other than God to give us pleasure and happiness, to give us peace. And he says, you will not find it because just like man was designed by God, and he he used this example, he said, man designed an engine for a car that runs on gasoline. You put anything else in it, it doesn't work. God was intended to be the fuel for man, the focus for man, the purpose of man. And so anything other than God fueling us, we just don't work right. We're in bondage to sin. And we're enslaved. And so he says we cannot be okay with others. Either being spiritually or practically oppressed as the redeemed church of Jesus. If we've been saved, we should act like it. We should speak like it. We should love like it, because reconciliation is all about building bridges beyond preferences, beyond prejudices, beyond pride, beyond, beyond partiality, beyond racism, and the things that are right now setting the entire world ablaze. It should be beyond all of that. Reconciliation was this, that you and I were all renewed for the sake of renewing all. We were intended to see others in their spiritual state of oppression just like we were once. That's what Paul's trying to remind us. That's what Moses is trying to say here. In order that we would join Jesus in advancing his kingdom one heart at a time. You see, this, this word ambassador that Paul uses here at the end of 2 Corinthians 5, it carries, a couple, it carries some weight with it. Number one, it means that it takes time. It's, it's a word in, the, in their language that will communicate maturity or old. So it it wasn't like out the gate, it's not infant-sized, size; is something that takes time to mature, but it also means something else. An ambassador never lived in their home country. An ambassador was always someone who represented their home country, their home kingdom, in a foreign land. The Bible says that you and I are in the world, not of the world. But we exist to bridge the gap between two worlds. We're not in the world, not of the world. An ambassador of a kingdom went into a foreign land to help that foreign land understand where they come from. They were supposed to look, act, and, and perpetuate the thoughts and the beliefs and the love and the traits of the kingdom that they represented. We're to be in the world, not of the world. If ministry and reconciliation was all about building bridges, let me ask you a question. Are you building up or are you tearing down? What kind of bridges are you, in fact, building? If Jesus would go as far as to say through the hand of Paul that Christ is making his appeal to the world through us, then what does your appeal look like? Because here's the truth. We pervade death when we don't speak life. And it takes intention to speak life. You have to intentionally remember who you were, realize where they are in reality, If we are going to, in love, seek to reconcile them to the one that we actually represent who freed us, the kingdom we actually represent versus the one for ourselves. The words we speak and the atmosphere that we create have power and lasting influence. So the question this morning, church, is this. What are you saying? And how are you saying it? What are the words that you're using, the love that you pervade, and the tone that it comes from your life with? Are you a builder or are you a breaker? Are you building up or are you tearing down? Are you building a bridge to his kingdom or stand in the way of it? truth is, the words that you and I speak should be encouraging others. I have to ask you, are they discouraging others? Are they life-filled from the gospel or are they tearing others down because they point to you? This morning, have you given yourself to the Lord's plan to refine you? Because the truth is, none of us are perfect, but all must be taught to walk like him. So I want you to write this down. We have to remember what we were saved from in order to be effective in what we, as his church, were saved for. As the band comes back, I want to just say this. This morning, if you are here and you're like, that hits, dad's speaking to me, and I, I desire prayer, I need prayer, and I want you to pray for me. Just reach out to us at prayer at We'd love to minister to you. Here's what I'm going to do for you right now. I'm going to pray as the band is coming. As they sing a truth over us that we are no longer who we once were, will we trust that, embrace it, and leave this place and love and walk and speak like that? Because the one we represent is life. Where we are prone to go back to is death. But that's not who we are. Father, we love you and thank you so much that you loved us this morning, you redeemed us that we would speak life, that we would live as people who represent your name, Jesus. May your love and life, your words, your truth come forth from us. May we remember who we were, may our hearts be burdened for those who don't know you, but you've entrusted to us. May we love you and love them, in Jesus' name, amen.